Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hey, Leslie. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me on Social Workers Rise. So this is Leslie Rodriguez, and she is just so amazing. She's just so sweet, uh, but yet at the same time, very assertive. <laughs> and I've, I've seen that you can definitely put on your social worker hat, and I really admire that about you, Leslie. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having so me. So I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, I would love to hear your story about why you got into social work or, you know, how did you know that social work is what you wanted to do? Um, yes. So, um, let's see, well, my journey (laughs) in and of itself could be a whole podcast, but I guess I can give you the cliff notes version of it. (laughs) So my, um, my family and I immigrated to the United States from Mexico when I was three years old and um, I basically um, grew up with that whole fear of being an immigrant you know until up until I became like a legal resident and then um, I'm also a parentified child (laughs) you know as a result of my parents divorcing Um, I was 14 years old and my and my brother was five years old when my parents divorced. So that's when the role of um, being parentified started. And then um, basically my brother struggled all of his life because of the divorce. He was five. So going into his adolescent years, he battled a lot with addiction and depression. So um, my whole life, I knew I wanted to grow up and help kids just like my brother almost like a journey for me to learn ways to help him and understand what he was going through. So I guess, I guess it's safe to say that um, I'm in this field because of him. <laughs> During my undergrad, I developed an interest in um, working with children and families affected by autism. And that's where I started behavioral therapy at the UCI Development Center. So when choosing a master's degree, I was really stuck between going into marriage and family therapy or master's in ABA or master's Mm. in social work. So um, I went, I went grad school shopping and I went to as many presentations for master's programs as I could. And it was actually at um, UCLA that I realized that social work entailed everything that I wanted to do in my life. And it was specifically at USC where I found my heart and my home. (laughs) So something about the Trojan family and just the vibe I got from everyone there was so welcoming and supportive that I knew like I have to be here. (laughs) And so I applied to like four different social work programs, including USC. And luckily I was accepted. So I, I went to USC School of Social Work. 
Wow, that's so. <laughs> and I love how your whole life has almost been just preparing you in a way for your work now in social work because you did because I feel like you're kind of my go-to person for like anything related to children and youth but you've had so much experience just in the social worker field in general um can you talk about a little bit about what kind of social work you've actually done yeah so I luckily I did have a wide range of social work experience, you know, during my master's and, you know, after. So um, I, I interned at a school, uh, at a school, you know, in my master's degree, I was doing school-based social work. And I loved working with the kiddos, but I didn't really like the red tape and the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy of it all. Um, anybody that works in school social work knows exactly what I'm talking about. And then I, um, after that, I interned at a children's mental health clinic, and I loved it. I completely fell in love with it. I was doing trauma-focused therapy. I was doing um, cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, parent-child interaction therapy. And so when I graduated, I really wanted to pursue, to continue to pursue that path, working with children and trauma and families. And I applied to several children's clinics, actually. And one company mentioned that they were in need of a Spanish-speaking therapist at one of their adult clinics and asked if they can forward my resume to that clinic. Um, long story short... I went to the interview, I made sure that I was very transparent about I had never worked with adults. <laughs> and so um, I was offered an interview, which ultimately resulted in me accepting my first role working with adults. Um, and so there, um, that was my first job out of grad school, I worked at an adult mental health clinic in Orange County for three years, where I worked with a persistently mentally ill um, patient. So working with the chronic mentally ill was something that surprisingly became very, very natural to me. Uh, there I learned things that no master's degree could possibly prepare you for. I mean, I'm sure even you, you know, there's things that school cannot prepare you for the things that you're going to learn in the field. And sure. so anyone that has worked for a county contracted program knows the uphill battle, you know, from learning to document, you know, for Medi-Cal billing and learning the, the lingo and not having adequate training, really, because we did, we weren't in school, we didn't really learn like, oh, how are you supposed to write documentation and things like that? I mean, at least at USC, we didn't, it was really focused on therapy and all of your interventions. So that was something that I had to learn and kind of maneuver on my own. So um, the it, it's kind of like a sink or swim, if you will, you know, and boy, did I sink <laughs> before Aww. I was able to stay afloat. So in that program, um, I did a lot of trauma therapy, um, dialectical behavioral therapy, and I was um, 5150 certified, which means that I was certified to put patients on an involuntary hold. So wow. um it was pretty, pretty intense clinic, you know, and with um, the psychiatrist. And so and we have a case and case managers. So the turnaround rate at that clinic was extremely high, like beyond high. And it was funny thing was that something that I had something that I was lied about during my interview, because I did ask, I remember that being one of my questions. 
um, I asked, what's the turnaround rate? And, you know, the, the person that interviewed me said, oh, you know, it's low. Um, we have people here that have been here for many years, but they were ultimately they were people in billing <laughs> wasn't and I even asked how severe and how uh, how much crisis work I would be given um, that be specifically because I had never worked with adults so I wanted to know you know how severe the patients were in the population that I was going to be working with you know the program director told me that our patients were all uh, Morse five and above if anybody knows the Morse system and that uh, it was a recovery clinic, meaning it was minimal crisis response. And of course, later it turned out not to be true. <laughs> Most of my patients were at a Morse three and four, and I did crisis response and crisis assessment on a daily basis. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, let's just say that I'm very let me let's just say that I'm very comfortable in crisis and very comfortable talking about suicide and homicide ideation. <laughs> oh, that is so so crazy. And those interview questions are very um what it like in- intuitive, is that the word? Like very um very good interview questions to be asking and I don't know if a lot of people would even think to ask those questions. Yeah, and I one thing I did learn about USC was just that intuition. You know, there's certain things that therapists can't be taught. And so I knew to, I knew specifically knowing that not working with adults, I had to be very transparent. If they're going to hire me to do therapy with any individual, you know, I should be very transparent in terms of what I feel comfortable with, what's within my scope of practice, and, you know, just evidence-based. That's something that was drilled in me from USC, and I thank USC for that. (laughs) But, you know, because of the turnaround in the clinic, you know, I gradually, like, ended up having, um, inheriting all of these really severe patients, because obviously, you when 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 a therapist leaves or, you know, clinicians leave, you know, the, the people that have to be, um, have immediate care available to them is, you know, the severe. And so with the turnaround rate, I ended up inheriting all of them at one point. Gosh. Yeah. And when I mean turnaround, I mean in all positions, including clinical supervisors and program directors. So, you know, at one point I went almost eight months without any supervision whatsoever. You know, I really had to, I even had to advocate for myself to receive supervision outside of the clinic in another program, you know, um, working with high risk patients and, you know, I'm talking about suicide and homicide and all these things. I, I, I felt it was a point where I felt uncomfortable. I said, I, am I even doing this right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you start questioning, you know, um, am I even in the right field? Am I doing this right? Am I causing more harm than good? And, you know, those are all valid questions for, you know, social workers to have and having, you know, adequate supervision. That's something that's so important just based on ethics alone, you know? And so I remember having to advocate for myself to receive that outside supervision. And, you know, it was a little bit of an uphill battle, but I I got it because I really said, you know, this is very serious the things that 
you know, could happen if, if I do something wrong and I'm doing trauma work. And I even for myself, I stopped doing um, TFCBT because I didn't feel comfortable because I didn't have any guidance. Like, you know, this I'm out of grad school. Like, I don't know if I'm doing it right. I need someone that's trained in TFCBT to let me know, you know what? No, that's actually detrimental or don't do this. And so what, I. What is TFCBD? TFCBT is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's specifically, again, I work with, I worked with very severe patients. So you have like complex trauma. And so that's a very specific, very strategic way of, the therapeutic approach is very, it's in stages. And so there are certain things that you have to do. And of course, there's certain things that you can't do, because you're kind of going back to the trauma, you're having patients revisit the trauma, and you're helping them get through it. And so I, if I do something wrong, that I could, it's, it could be very, it was, it could be very bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I didn't, you know, having someone revisit these traumatic experiences from their childhood, or whatever, um, not having adequate not feeling comfortable myself, I could do a lot of harm to a patient if I don't know how to treat that trauma and and be able to provide them with the coping skills necessary for them to, you know, overcome it. And so it was, it was very scary for me. And I said, you know what, for, for myself, you know, my ethics first, and I'm going to stop doing specific, um, like I said, it's very structured. So um, I said, I'm going to stop doing this because I'm not comfortable. I don't have anybody to tell me, um, actually, you shouldn't be doing that. You should do this. And, you know, and so, um, yeah, so I did that for myself. And so I, I think at one point, you know, like I said, I had 65 therapy patients, you know, and because I because productivity was never an issue for me, whoever was in charge at the time really never checked in on me in county contracted clinics, it's all about your numbers, you know, um, are you meeting productivity? Are you meeting your dish, your numbers? And as long as you're doing that, you know, that's at least my experience. That's really all they cared about. They never, whenever I was given supervision, quote unquote, it was more so talking about my productivity. It was talking about the numbers. It was talking about the program expectations. It was never, a time for them to check in on me like hey you know any transference any counter transference what's going on it was it was never that and that's what supervision should have been and that is ultimately what I ended up advocating for myself you know outside of the clinic so you know I I stayed in that clinic because of my patients, you know, having to change therapists and psychiatrists so frequently was heartbreaking for me to see them, you know, they would relapse, they would um, have these episodes of, you know, abandonment. And it was hard. It was really hard. And I didn't want to leave them. I didn't want to be one of those people that abandoned them. And, and, you know, according to their eyes, you know, and I wanted to be their safe person their consistency in their life through their recovery. And then, you know, it sounds, it sounds very familiar, you know, wasn't after I left the clinic that I realized, wow, this sounds like, you know, you can go back and many therapists can say, you know, I'm doing to my patients what I did to my brother, you know, I wanted to be that safe person, I wanted to be that consistency and that safe, um, giving them that safe space. And, 
you know, it wasn't after the fact that I realized that that's what was happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, you had such a strong emotional tie to your work that it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a job for you. We weren't there just, just to meet the productivity numbers. I mean, it was your life's mission to, mm-hmm. to help people and it was personal for you. And, and I really, you know, respect that about you. And I just can't help but think, you know, all of these, you know, daily crisis mode, like that is just so much to even handle and cope with. And I know that we talked a little bit about, you know, your experience with vicarious trauma. And like, once you were out of that situation, you know, that you kind of realized. So, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about like, what is vicarious trauma? And you know, what did that look like for you? Um, Yeah, so like I said, um, the vicarious trauma, I didn't realize it until after I left the clinic that I realized what was happening. I think it was because of my symptoms. And it was some bizarre things too. like I started having nightmares, like very specific um, nightmares about specific patients, like actually completing suicide and things like that, where I realized like I felt very guilty of leaving them. And I felt that if something were to happen to them, I, I felt that it was going to be my responsibility. And so, um, you know, of course, like while I was at the while I was at the clinic, I had different things happen. But um, ultimately, I didn't realize how severe it was until after I was taken out of that environment. So once I was in a better headspace and in a better environment is when my body started processing all of the trauma that I had experienced in the last three years, which was very, wow, like it was like, you know, a slap in the face. It was like, I talked about trauma and all these symptoms with my patients on a day in and day out. And it happening to me was very like eye opening. It was like an out of body experience, really. And so I want to go talk about a little bit more about that. But uh, social workers in the field and even providers, there's four potential effects that can happen in at work you know um so there's four things so it's one is burnout two is moral injury three is secondary traumatic stress and four is vicarious trauma the reason that once i left that clinic i it was it then became my responsibility as a clinician to learn and research um, you know, burnout and all of these things, you know, because I needed to be able to take control of my transference and counter transference and, and heal. Really, it was just a healing process for me. And so I said, I really need to inform myself and really learn about what I just went through in the last three years so that I can be a good clinician. So I started researching, I started going to um, conferences, and I started taking trainings on these four specific um, uh, components, you know, in in the workforce for social workers. And so that's where I learned the the four differences. So basically, um, burnout, I hope a, a lot of social workers will probably relate, 
And so um, burnout is basically um, just the exhaustion, physical emotion and psychological emotion of being um, having large caseload and like chronic and complex cases. So burnout was something that I knew I knew off the bat. I while I was in the clinic, like I'm burned out, (laughs) like I am tired. I I'm feeling um I'm feeling drained. I feel like I don't want to do anything after I get out of work. And, you know, a lot of times I stayed um, over the time that I was supposed to. So it wasn't like an eight to five. There's sometimes I would go home at eight or nine. And it was just burnout was very apparent to me. It was like I knew this is exactly what was happening. And it was because, you know, having 65 chronic severe therapy patients will do that to you. So that Mm -hmm. was burnout. So you knew, um, so you knew, like in the moments, or you know, while you were still in that environment, that you were burnt out at that moment. Yes. So I did know at that moment because I had learned about burnout in grad school. So I remember it was maybe like one class um, lecture on it, but I remember it. I remember the I had little flashbacks of being in class and hearing about this and knowing about this and so I said okay because they always said don't burn out don't burn out (laughs) and (laughs) so I knew exactly what was happening I knew I was burning out so I knew that for myself and so I it took on I I knew that I needed to manage my workload I knew I needed to adapt different time management skills to keep my sanity because that's why a lot of the clinicians left because they were burnt out and they they couldn't manage like even though we were all seeing patients like back to back to back we would get behind on documentation you know we would be um almost drowning in documentation because we just couldn't keep up and so I I adapted throughout the years I adapted a system for myself that worked for me you know and so that was something that I did to kind of help take control of that burnout. I mean, it was going to happen. It was inevitable. 65 plus patients, like there's just no way, but you have to have some sense of control. So that was one thing that I did for myself. Well, the other thing, mm -hmm. what was your system? I'm kind of curious to hear what what system. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, a lot of the, a lot of the times, like in the very beginning, I would see all my patients. And then at the end of the day, I would do my documentation. And that's when I ended up coming home like at eight or nine. And so I realized like, I did that for a couple months. And I said, No, this isn't very effective. Like, yes, I'm getting my documentation done. But it's just not working out for me, (laughs) you know, for my personal life. Mm -hmm. And then I started incorporating, um, the doing the note while the patient was there so I would have therapy I would do and it kind of helped outline it kind of helped outline how my um my session would go and talking about um what I was going to talk about what we talked about and what we were going to touch base on the next time I saw them so I kind of started doing my notes like with the patient And um, as soon as they left, I would kind of try to finish it before my my next patient. That way, it also gave me a little bit of space in between to to process what we just went through or whatever the case might be. So that ultimately ended up being the most effective for me. And then I ended up coming home, you know, in an appropriate time. (laughs) Yeah. Did you find that 
let doing the notes during the visit, did it impact your interaction or the quality of visits at all? Um, I didn't do it with every single one of my patients. I knew which ones. Um, so I had a, a lot of patients that love to talk. So that helped um, kind of really set firm boundaries and kind of redirect them if anything so that helped those specific patients like this is the plan for today we're going to focus on this instead of going off on different tangents Mm. like it really just helped structure the 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 session but of course like when I was in in crisis response like I wasn't we would I wouldn't do that I would just document that um I completed like a crisis assessment and these are the interventions that I did. We did a safety plan, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it it really, I really gauged some of them just, of course, they wouldn't be open to it, you know, like, oh, um, more of the paranoid patients, like, what are you writing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to see what you're writing and what are you saying? And I just knew that that wouldn't work for them. So it's really that clinical judgment. Okay. That makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then um, another thing I experienced was moral injury. Um, That one is specifically um, that inner conflict. This is uh, a good example I have of this was when one time I had one of my program directors at the time and supervisors um, because they would check all of our notes and then just say, oh, you know, add another intervention or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. And so... um, she I remember one time they asked me to change my note and it was specifically um a note relating to um a child child abuse so I had to write a CPS report and so they said oh you know change your note and I said "Mm, I'm not comfortable changing my note you know because I'm writing I wrote down verbatim what the patient had told me and this and this and so I I gave really detailed um, examples and so I remember them telling me, I'll never forget, they said, Medi-Cal doesn't care about what the patient said or, you know, the interaction. You know, your notes are like a receipt of services. They don't care about the context. So just eliminate it. Just say that you talked to the patient and that you um, completed a CPS report and that's it. And I said, no, <laughs> not it was that conflict where they were asking me to do something I didn't feel morally correct and I said I'm not comfortable and I feel very uncomfortable what you're asking me to do because if something were to happen I need to cover myself that I did the proper you know I did the proper steps I did you know every day I asked the right questions and I'm covering myself and it was it was hard you know and of course because of that you know there was um some how would you say I was reprimanded and things like that you know it wasn't like direct but you know their their whole vibe changed with me you know that I was defiant or whatever the case might be but that was a good example of that moral injury like and it didn't it didn't happen just once it happened several times where they ask you to do something that you just know doesn't align with your ethics and so that's something that I know like from several social workers in that clinic and you know in the field that they felt at one point in their career that uh, that happened Mm -hmm. yeah I just I didn't know that there was an actual name for yeah it's an actual term Mm -hmm. awesome yeah and um 
so then this the third thing is called um secondary traumatic stress and that is um basically really in line with symptoms of PTSD. So, you know, of course, trauma exposure is required for that. And so exposure to suffering and especially like imagery and things like that and just context of the day-to-day interactions you have with your patients. So that that, um, ultimately leads to the symptoms of you know, that really go aligned with PTSD, the nightmares, you know, the triggers, the emotional response to certain stimuli. And so um, that was one of the things that I remember experiencing after leaving um, that clinic was that I started having these nightmares. I started having flashbacks of certain sessions of certain um, involuntary holds that I made, um, certain situations and mentioning certain things I remember I remember would trigger like an emotional response to me and it was just really really out of body experience and dissociation almost like what is happening right now like I can't identify anything that made me feel this way and then just really doing deeper work I realized wow like this reminded me of this person or etc or a patient in the past and so that's um that's secondary traumatic stress and then lastly uh I have a I think so if I understand correctly I think I have a story of when I experienced secondary traumatic stress uh within hospice so I had a patient at a certain boarding care facility and I would see her like she was generally you know well you know well cared for at the facility, um, as far as I want to believe. And the caregivers only spoke Spanish. And mm-hmm. I don't speak Spanish. But they spoke like basic English and and I spoke basic Spanish. So whenever <laughs> I went, you know, I saw this particular woman. And I said, you know, she looks like she's in pain. And she has dementia. And so, you know, I know that she's not trying to manipulate me. Um, but she, they said, oh, no, no, no. She just, she just looks like that. That's just her face. Or we just gave her her pain medication. You know, we're just waiting for it to kick in. And we did it right before you got here. Or it would be like, oh, well, we, we, we're going to give her the pain medication. She's due, you know, in 30 minutes for the medication. But and so this went like there was a different response every single time I went. Like she she just she just was like that, or we just changed her, we just had to move her. And like for months, this poor woman was in pain. And and I talked with the nurses and, and the doctor who saw, and they're like, Yeah, you know, everything is is good. And so I'm like, okay, maybe they're telling me the truth, and and all of these things just so happen to line up and and so she ended up passing and a couple months later, maybe even a year later, I'm not sure, there was another patient, another woman who was in that exact same room, the exact same position in the bed and mm-hmm. in pain again. And I was like, no, there's no way, like, there's no way that she is just looking like this. There's no way she's being manipulative. There's no way that like we must do something to make sure that she's not in pain. And it was a much stronger response from me 
And my supervisor, you know, she would see me in the IDT. She's like, Catherine, you know, what is going on with you? Like, why are you so, um, you know, you just seem extra passionate about this particular person. Like, what is it? And I said, and I explained it to her. I was like, well, this is the second time I've, I've seen this in this home, in that bed, in that spot. And I just kept getting flashbacks in my mind to the first woman like, honestly, I don't remember the second person. It was just like the first woman, like her face and her pain is kind of ingrained in my memory. And mm-hmm. I like continued to hold on to that. I don't need to let go, but it's just like, and I think it almost serves me to know, like when my intuition is there, you know, maybe, maybe see if there is more that we can do. Um, and just, you know, it ended up that because I was so adamant about the second person that the team and the medical team did take it a little bit more seriously. And it came out that the nurse that was going that like, I don't know. I don't know if she, if she just didn't want to like make the facility mad or make them. I'm not sure, but Mm -hmm. I definitely, you know, I definitely saw a difference with the second person and she wasn't in pain, you know, for, like as long. So it wasn't as bad of, of an experience. So is that yeah. a very tra- traumatic? Yeah. Yeah. Because you have these flashbacks, it starts affecting your, um, your response, your emotions and your judgment based on this one experience that happened. And so it's a very real thing for social workers, you know, you'll, you'll go back to, and I mean, I have endless stories of this, because I went through so many, I mean, 65, you know, at one point, but um, it all kind of started, I guess you could say, eventually, um, some of the stories, the stories of my patients started kind of meshing together, where it was just like, all of my rape survivors, you know, and all of this. And so that's going into this vicarious trauma, you know, the last component of it where, you know, the trauma exposure is required and it's this change in like worldview and like breakdown of like belief system. So then it starts impacting your like interpersonal skills where it affected my relationship. It affected my relationship with friends and, you know, all of these things where, you know, I had friends that would reach out to me and um, would want to talk about their stress and what's going on in their relationships. And it was a point where like, oh, my God, I cannot, I cannot <laughs> listen to another, um, another sad story today. Or let's say if my personal friends were having issues with, you know, depression or suicide thoughts, it was like, oh, my gosh, like, here we go again, you know, it really starts impacting you, you know. And so it's, I mean, I was always still there, but I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, your story's not as bad as my patient that went through da 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 da. So it's just, it really starts impacting you in a negative way. And so I, again, I didn't know that that's what was happening until I was taken out of that environment and really doing the research and the work of what was going on that I realized that oh, wow, <laughs> this is a real thing. And this is really, this is something I went through and this is what I'm still going through because there's still, even to this day, um, 
watching certain documentaries and, or watching certain things that will, I, you know, I will cry. And I mean, that's a normal response to cry. But for me, it was a little bit like a sob. And I remember feeling having these flashbacks and, and feeling this connection to to certain things that are a little bit out of the ordinary and it was because of everything that I had endured in the past three years and not not just that but just in my life in general like wanting to be the savior for all these people and wanting to going in kind of what I went through with my brother and wanting to help him and you know it's just taking on that role that you know, parentified role for every person that I came in contact with, like, I was, it was inevitable for me to burn out and just not be able to cope, (laughs) you know? Yeah, because there's just no way that you can save everybody. And that's, that's not even your, your role, really. I mean, I don't know if it, I kind of see your role as, or, you know, people in that position as being a guide, as a helper, as, a support system to, and then, and a teach teacher to help people learn how to cope with these skills, but not necessarily to save them. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. Oh yeah. And I didn't realize that until after the fact, you know, I realized that I still had a lot of work to do in terms of my own issues with, you know, my, my childhood and everything that I had gone through in life. And so being able to be a better clinician for it you know and so it really took a lot of time to be able to have that self-awareness and I'm I mean as much as it was difficult what I went through um, I think that I mean I wouldn't maybe I would have changed it in terms of advocating for supervision a little bit more but ultimately I learned all the skills that I have and I learned everything that I that I that I do have now is because of that situation same similar to you know my childhood you know people say oh you know do you wish that you would have said something to your parents earlier things would have been different in your childhood like I mean I wouldn't wish any of the pain that I went through as a kid to anybody but I am the person I am today because of it and I think that I'm the clinician I am today because of everything that I went through in that clinic, you know, mm-hmm, definitely. and it definitely mm-hmm. takes like, you're actively reframing all of your experiences to, to not have them as a weakness, but to have them as a strength that you now use and you build on to help other people. And I think that's amazing. Yeah, I, you know, I, a lot of the times I, I think about, um, you know, every social worker's asked like, oh, so what's next? You know, what, where do you see yourself in five years or, you know, and I always thought, you know, I, I love um, therapy, you know, I love doing what I do, but I really, um, something about that experience, really, really, I'm drawn to being a supervisor, you know, being a clinical supervisor and helping other social workers in the field because of the experience that I went through and being able to advocate, you know, for other social workers and knowing that being able to teach them of having that awareness of their symptoms and being able to um, acknowledge emotional response and, you know, being able to identify that how important that is. And so I think that's where, you know, I see myself and my next you know, the next um, notch would be, you know, hopefully be a supervisor. Yeah, that's awesome. I think you would be a spectacular supervisor. I think 
Thanks. I'm kind of wondering, so, you know, you listed the burnout, moral injury, secondary traumatic stress, vicarious trauma, and that you were there for three years. So at what point or how long did it take for you to be in this chronically stressful environment for you to start feeling these different emotions? Was it like immediately? Was it a year? You know, like, do you remember what the time frame was? Um, I started feeling, um, I started feeling it at the end of my third year. So I guess being there, I started, this is where I started kind of this, my personal growth and just really started being more aware of my emotions. And then I started forgiving myself and accepting that if I leave this clinic, it's going to be better for me and that it wasn't going to be my fault if something happened to my patient. So, so being able to accept it was really important. And I, (laughs) I told them, I gave them so much ahead of time. Like I told my patients and the program director, like, I'm trying to transition out of the clinic, but I am ethical and I want to give my patients enough time to process me leaving, you know, because I had the chronic, very severe cases and complex trauma. I needed them to be ready, you know, to when it came the time for me to leave. And so I did that for myself. And I think that it was something that was very, it was very important to me to not to, to kind of like a transitional thing for them and I wanted them to be able to cope with it appropriately and I not just I'm leaving it or leaving in the next day or whatever like some of them would just give their two weeks and leave and not have that termination process with the patients which is so so bad you know but a lot of times we don't have that option you know depending of where, where we're working at you know we don't and so um when I left, when I ultimately left, it wasn't until maybe a month after where I was in a different headspace where the other symptoms, where I was having those residual symptoms come up. So it was almost immediate. Like I left and then it was time for me to heal. It sounds like <laughs> you were in a constant state of like adrenaline. Yes. Yes, I was. <laughs> and it's funny because even now when I'm faced with a uh, crisis I go back to it I I can go back into it really quick (laughs) which is good it's a good thing to have for you know a clinical skill but it's also like oh you know I I I kind of getting off of the being in the adrenaline that high the the getting off is really scary because I don't know how it's going to look until it happens you know I don't know if I'm going to be triggered from a patient or some memory or something so that's always really scary, but the, luckily I'm able to get into that, um, that state of mind really quick. I can almost instinctually. <laughs> so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, was there anything that could have been done or like, what, what did you need in that position? Like what could have been done to prevent the burnout or at least to reduce all of these negative emotions, you know, give you a chance to just like decompress and not be chronically stressed and in, um, in adrenaline mode is, you know, what, what could have been done? Um, supervision is by far the most important thing. (laughs) Like I cannot 
emphasize that enough. And I don't mean just having supervision is enough. I mean, quality supervision is detrimental to the coping and the recovery of the vicarious trauma and everything that social workers face in, in the field. It, um, I mean, I'm even, it's suggested in several studies that, you know, having tangible acts of care, you know, meaning making help, making, um, how would you say it? Like having these tangible things that you have as a support system during these times are so important. And so it's, I, it's really supervision. It's having that support system and it's, not just family and friends, it's like colleagues, it's your coworkers, it's the supervisors, it's having that safe space for you to, um, to be able to do that. So yeah, it takes more than one person, like one, one supervisor. It definitely takes a team of people to be around us and quality relationships, relationships that don't drain us, um, ones that lift us in and you know we're just kind of reading spirit because we're not meant to go we're not meant to live this life alone and much less we're not made to go through all of these stressful events by ourselves either um which I, unfortunately i feel is kind of in our culture as americans like like oh you just deal with it and and move on but that's not that's not always effective or efficient in these extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, and I mean, just to quote some of the, some of the studies on all of these things, um, one, of, one of the biggest things is finding, working in a place that supports you and um, making a difference, that you feel that you're making a difference and that you have the support you know, of your colleagues and supervisors. More specifically, um, for secondary traumatic stress, it is recommended that individuals seek mental health intervention, given that you will um, be treating literally PTSD-like symptoms. And that is, you know, obviously best done with a therapist. But other than that, I think just having that support, and that's something that we developed in that clinic, you know, the clinicians and I, um, we, we didn't have adequate supervision, so we did it for ourselves kind of instinctually. So, and not even on purpose, it was just, we would go out for lunch or, you know, happy hour, whatever, and we would just kind of process on our own because we didn't have that outlet. And it's just so, so important. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So what are some things that social workers can do, you know, if they feel like they may be um, at risk for for some trauma or experiencing it or recovering from it? Yes, I think um, one of the most important things is acknowledging what's going on and be having that insight of your emotions and thoughts. I believe that um, one of the most important things is to advocate for yourself. Once you start feeling those emotions coming or those thoughts and kind of this response to certain things, I think it's really, really important to have that awareness of your symptoms. I believe knowing what certain emotions and responses are coming from um, help identify that residual trauma response to something that happened maybe months ago, weeks ago, or years ago. I think knowing that um, clearly 
for example, for me, knowing that I clearly hadn't processed something helps me be a stronger person than, and a clinician moving forward in all the aspects of my life. You know, if I get emotional talking about something, I know that I hadn't healed completely from that experience. And that's okay, as long as I address it and acknowledge it. So I think that for clinicians, the most important thing is, first of all, being aware of their emotions and their symptoms. And most importantly, is um, advocating for themselves, you know, advocating for supervision. And if a supervisor is not doing it for you then advocating to get outside supervision or or hey can we have a group started or something because I think that is so so important because having that support or or being able to say to a supervisor hey I don't feel supported I don't feel validated and I don't feel that I I have this safe space to talk about it is crucial for you know, all social workers. Definitely, definitely for sure. Well, that's super powerful, Leslie. Is And thank you so much for sharing your stories and, you know, for just giving us some insight into all of this. I know I learned a lot and had realizations <laughs> while we were talking. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're very welcome. It's, you know, it's, I'm still very close I'm still very close to some of the clinicians I worked with. You know, I, we've become very close friends. Um, I was fortunate of meeting them, you know, in my in my path, and <laughs> somehow trauma brought us closer together. Yeah. And we make time to get together, and still, and we still process things going on in our lives, even though we've all taken different paths in life. Because if, literally, everyone that I worked with doesn't work there anymore. And um, sometimes we, when we're, we tie it to unprocessed emotions of things that happened in that clinic, it's, it's almost like a group supervision, if you will, you know, we, we go around the table, we check in and talk about what's going on in our lives. And we are there to support each other and validate and sometimes get reality checks while we're drinking mimosas (laughs) or wine (laughs) during brunch. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Was there anything else that we didn't cover that you feel is important? Um, no, I mean, um, reach out. I think if any any social worker out there needs uh, somebody to listen or, or anything, um, you, they can always reach out to me or they can even take initiative and start a group themselves, you know, if they're in a community and just want to open up a forum or just something like a meetup of like, Hey, I'm getting together. I'm a social worker in X field and I want to get together for happy hour with fellow social workers just to kind of talk and process, like do it. And if they, if they're around me, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes. Which I already um, anticipate, you know, our, our social workers, we have a long road ahead of us, you know, with, kind of healing from this it's a it's affected us personally and you know in our communities and our patients that we work with so you know more than ever I think that social workers should rise and unite (laughs) with each other and just be that support because their social workers I think are going to play a very important role in the months and years to come oh yeah oh yeah for (laughs) sure there's so much already starting and we're really at the beginning of everything so you know definitely and Mm -hmm. I think that this conversation that we're having is very 
relevant to to everybody because we need to make sure that we are in the best mental space possible, you know, for ourselves and our families and the people that we help and work with. So that's very powerful. Yes, definitely. I I hope that there's a lot of wine um, Zoom meetings up in the, I, I, <laughs> in our upcoming futures. I had a wine Zoom meeting last night. Oh, nice. I haven't had one yet, and I am just might reach out to fellow clinicians and people in the field right now, essential workers that oh, would love yeah. to have hey, one. Thursdays. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. So where can people find you? Um, let's see. So, I mean, I would say you can find me on Instagram, but because I, I really prioritize my self care and boundaries now, you'll just basically see me ha- doing self care and wine and brunch and mimosa. <laughs> so maybe that won't be a good reflection of who I am. But um, for now, I think I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. Leslie Rodriguez if you want to reach out to me any social workers um Leslie Rodriguez L-E-S-L-Y um Rodriguez with a Z you know my picture I have a flower and red lipstick I I think I'm like I should be easy looking to find. so cute pretty, <laughs> as you always <laughs> thank all you. right Leslie well thank you so much for your time and um you know I hope that we get to talk again soon yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me. And if if I can be of any uh, additional resource or anything, awesome. give me a call. Do. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, write a review and give us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. This just helps other people just like you find us and join our community. Also, I would love to connect with you on Instagram. You can find me at socialworkersrise. I can't wait to see you next week. Bye.